Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello, hello, it's the Big 4-0. Welcome to episode 40 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. I've changed the strap line, do you notice? My name is Dominic Delaghi, and according to ChatGPT, oh yeah, oh yes, I'm very up to date, the area that Soho covers is only 0.9 square kilometres, which is quite small. My AI robot friend also defined for me the boundaries of Soho used in this calculation. The generally recognised borders of London Soho are to the north, Oxford Street, to the east, Charing Cross Road, to the south, Shaftesbury Avenue, to the west, Regent Street. However, the exact boundaries of Soho can be somewhat fluid and subjective, as the area has a long and complex history with many overlapping neighbourhoods and districts. Some people might include parts of Covent Garden, Fitzrovia, or Mayfair within the broader definition of Soho, while others might draw the boundaries more narrowly to focus on the heart of the neighbourhood around Wardour Street and Old Compton Street. Ooh, you sound sexy. Maybe you could meet for a drink on Wardour Street or Charing Cross Road. Anyway, I'm amazed we've managed to contrive connections between such a tiny area and 40 films, and counting, because according to my official Soho Bites list of Soho films, there's at least the same number again just waiting to be done. So thank you for listening so far, and don't go away, because there's plenty more where they came from. Now, Soho has, of course, been at the heart of the UK jazz scene, many years and at the heart of that heart is the greatest and most famous jazz club in the world which as you know is Ronnie Scott's on Frith Street. The club we see there today has been there since 1965 but is actually the second iteration of the venue as Ronnie and his business partner Pete King opened the first version on Gerrard Street way back in 1959. And as this is our jazz-themed episode, I was delighted to be able to conduct both interviews for this show at Ronnie Scott's one quiet Friday morning before it opened. That's thanks to a very nice fellow who works there called Paul Pace. Thank you, Paul. The film we're talking about today is All Night Long from 1962 and stars Patrick McGowan, Richard Attenborough and a multitude, a multitude of jazz greats. It's a retelling in a jazz style of Shakespeare's Othello. So fittingly, my guest for this is a composer for both theatre and film, friend of the show, Gary Yershon. And before talking to Gary, we'll be hearing from Tom Smith. Tom is a young saxophonist, composer and arranger with a bulging diary who plays with several bands and on the day we met was due to perform at Ronnie Scott's that night with a funk jazz band called Resolution 88. 
links to them in the show notes. Now, there is a particular reason why I wanted to meet Tom at that particular place, other than the fact that Ronnie's is such an iconic location, of course, which we will hear about later. But before I do anything else, I should really switch over from the Soho Bites theme tune, much admired as it is, to one of Tom's numbers, like so. This is Swansea Uproar by the Tom Smith Big Band, just one of his many musical ventures. I first heard of Tom Smith a couple of years ago when I was making an episode of one of my other podcasts, Mural Morsels. The episode was about Ronnie Scott, and I was talking to an old friend of his, the satirist, musician, artist, broadcaster, etc., etc., Barry Fantoni. Such a cool name, I wish I was called Barry Fantoni. Barry told me about Tom and about his admiration for his abilities as a player and composer and went on to tell me an amazing story about the connection between Barry, Tom and Ronnie Scott. I've clipped that portion out of the original programme and included it in the upcoming conversation with Tom, a conversation I kicked off with a horribly lame question. What's it like to play at Ronnie Scott's? Does it feel like a special place when you're there? Oh, sorry, must do better. It's a very, very special place. I, it's always been very special. It's been somewhere I've been coming to see music since I was a kid, since a teenager, um, with my dad. It's just the home for where all of the best kind of jazz happens in London. So I've been coming for a very, very long time. So it's really, really nice that the career started to turn to the point where I can actually play gigs here. And it's got such a place in the kind of internationalizing of jazz in England bringing over American artists and sending English artists over to um, America before they knew that we could play jazz. Who were your musical inspirations from your childhood? Um, well, I was, I was brought up um, listening to a lot of um, a lot of jazz from the 60s, so a huge amount of Blue Note records, a lot of Cannibal Ladley, a lot of Charlie Parker, a lot of um, Coltrane, Miles, um, Hank Mobley, that kind of era of music. So. Definitely the kind of swing, groovy 60s uh, angle is where I kind of came from when I was uh, growing up. I guess all of my influences now, all of them have grown out of that scene as well. So I listen a lot to artists like Dave Holland, who was there for a lot of it. Um, Chris Potter, I listen to a huge amount. He's one of my favorite saxophone players. Um, I listen a lot to Kenny Garrett. That kind, of, that kind of era of music, I think, has inspired all of the artists who I like the most. I don't know a lot about jazz, really, but I'm, I get a bit flummoxed by the categories and the subcategories and all the different divisions. Having all these ins- these inspirations in your in your musical life, what do you now play? Do you, would you put yourself in a particular category, or are you sort of multi-category? I think jazz sometimes is a victim of having too many categories these days. I think any music where there's improvisatory elements, that's going to be something I'm drawn to 100%. I like the idea of music which doesn't have its uh, destination predetermined and any kind of style that crosses over with jazz where that can happen I really really enjoy so funk jazz where there is a groove going on but it's 
group improvisatory and it could veer off into all sorts of different territories. I really enjoy that. I love swing and I love kind of funkier grooves. I like Latin grooves as well. So I think definitely I find myself playing a lot more swing than anything else. And the band you're playing with this weekend, Resolution 88, they would fit into that kind of funk area, wouldn't they? Definitely. I think their their inspiration, um, well, Tom, Tom O'Grady, who runs the band, he listens to a huge amount of Herbie Hancock, a lot of, like, well, Jamiroquai is quite a big influence in there. But how long have you been playing since you were a, a wee nipper? Pretty much. I, I started on the sax at about age 9, 10, but before then I'd been playing piano and clarinet. I wasn't big enough to be able to hold a saxophone when I was six or seven. <laughs> I was very, very small, um, so I had to start on the clarinet, and that's a pretty normal kind of route for young musicians to go through because the clarinet's got a lot of similarities. So you can really learn your fingerings, learn your embouchure, learn how to make a nice sound on the clarinet, which is a lot harder instrument than the sax, really. And then when you're big enough, um, you can move over, and then the sax becomes a lot easier to to master, I think I was able to start going in with my grades a lot sooner than I would have done otherwise. It's been about, I guess, God, that's going to be nearly like 16, 17 years of playing the sax now. And you were a finalist in the Young, the BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year twice? It was amazing because it was the first time, um, and this would, this would be in 2014, it was the first time they'd, um, the BBC had opened up the competition to jazz artists. As a kid, it was a programme I'd watched a lot, and it was something I'd always wanted to be, to, something to strive to do. But I, I was fully playing jazz from when I was 10. I'd never studied classical music at all. So that was kind of always an avenue that I knew was closed, because I couldn't hope to get anywhere close to being able to play that music properly. But in 2014, they decided finally to open it up to jazz musicians, which was a really, really fantastic idea, and they, they absolutely executed it perfectly. They, they got us all playing with um, the Gwilym Simcock trio, who are, and Gwilym's one of the most phenomenal pianists around, and they invited us to just bring whatever we wanted to play with the trio, which as an 18-year-old was incredibly daunting because it was being broadcast, of course, and we had to play in this amazing hall in the um, Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama to a huge audience, um, and never done anything quite like it before. And I think it really sort of kick-started how I felt like I wanted to start presenting my own shows and thinking about my own kind of music. And now you have you have a, a big band, you have a septet, you have Gecko. Can you tell me about those three? Is, is there more? Um, yeah, there are. There is more. It's one of the one of the problems, I guess, with the jazz scene is that it's very very hard to get a whole load of gigs with the same project. So I, I very much subscribe to having lots and lots of different projects and lots of different bands, and and it keeps my life interesting to have many very different bands going on. So Gecko was one of the first bands I really started that was a trio with myself and two musicians I went to music college with. Will Barry on piano and Johnny Mansfield on the vibes. And that's got a really chamber jazz kind of feel to it. Again, it's quite open, it's quite free, and it's got a kind of a, a sometimes a folky feel. And then that contrasts completely with my big band, which is, I mean, I listen to a lot of Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, Carla Blade, there's, there's some avant-garde kind of coming in there. Pat Metheny as well, so that the big band's got an entirely different, slightly more muscular, frantic energy. And another band that I occasionally uh, play with whenever we kind of get the time is a band called Quartets, which we've just booked actually to play here at Ronnie's on Pride, um, which is a band that celebrates all the LGBTQ musicians who've contributed to the jazz canon over the years and features a band of all um, queer musicians coming together to play the music. 
the reason I heard about you in the first place was because of another podcast I do called Mural Morsels. I'm going to play a little clip for it, actually. And uh, this is how I first heard of you. And it's why I wanted to meet you in Ronnie Scott's. So uh, let me just cue this up. This is a little section off a Mural Morsels episode in which I spoke to Barry Fantoni about Ronnie Scott. When Ronnie died in suspicious circumstances, by that I mean they're not sure whether he died naturally or killed himself. Nobody bothered to look for his saxophones. And later Pete found them all under on his bed. And there was a King Baritone, a two tenor saxophones, two altos that belonged to his dad, and an alto that belonged to Ronnie. And they put them up for sale at Phillips uh, auction house. And I saw in the paper that morning that, that they were going up and I went along and uh, it was extraordinary. The, the sale was advertised as rare musical instruments. So I expected that every jazz musician in London would be, and I would be a spectator. There were, you know, there was Stradivarius violin for sale, for example. You know, really, really old guitars that, that were worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. And stuck in a corner was Ronnie's, all Ronnie's saxophones, a whole kind of lot, lot eight. And uh, so it's a guy, you know, this is, and now lot eight is saxophone and to late Ronnie Scott. Now, they have only bid at £100 for, for the collection. Selling, so thought, selling as a job lot, not selling in the... Yeah, gym. selling as a job lot. Right. Yeah. So I said, so I put my hand up, I'll be quick. No one else was there. <laughs> Any advice? No. So I, I got all Ronnie's saxophones for 100 quid. Uh, pulling my leg. Seriously. Um, seriously, they're, they're worth thousands. The, the baritone itself is worth £7,000. I sold the baritone. Uh, to to a friend, and it's interesting that Tommy Smith was runner-up of last year's BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year. He's one of the best players in Britain, and um, I'm so so impressed by Tommy's playing that I bequeathed uh, Tom Smith all Ronnie saxophones, and he takes them out on gigs. He's repaired all his father's saxophones so they're playable, and Tommy's dad, Steve Smith, runs a company called. True call, and he invented a system which stops cold calls coming into your home. And he's made absolute millions from this. And he brought Ronnie Scott's old jazz club sign. So when you go to Steve Smith's house, you see Ronnie in a kitchen, you see Ronnie Scott jazz club sign, and you can hear Tom Smith playing his tenor. So you are the owner of Ronnie Scott's saxophones. It's quite bizarre. Um... But yeah, a, f a few of them anyway. Um, I think there's lots that he's played that are around in different people's hands. I think Alex Garnett, who's the saxophone player with the house band here, I think he owns one of them as well. But yeah, Barry's story was just crazy about winning them in an auction. For uh, £100? Yeah. I mean, crazy. I think he went there to find out who was going to buy them and then didn't expect to be coming home with them himself. But him and my dad uh, met on a gig years ago at the, I think at the Chelsea Arts Club. And since I started playing music, Barry's always been very interested in hearing what I've been up to. Then he decided he wanted to sell the horns because I think they weren't being used and he'd much rather have them being played regularly. So we, we decided to buy the baritone saxophone from him. So I hadn't owned a saxophone at that, a baritone sax at that point and I was really interested in it. I'd loved playing it whenever I'd been able to borrow one, but I'd never owned one and this was a great opportunity to own a piece of history. So we decided to buy it off him and it got started getting a lot of use. I play in a lot of big bands around whenever I can. I really love the sound of it. And then 
very, very generously and kindly and without even realizing it was going to happen. He came over and he uh, let me use all of the horns. So there's two alto saxophones, there's a tenor saxophone and the baritone sax. And the altos belong to Ronnie Scott's father. And one of them was manufactured in the 20s. I mean, it's got this beautiful, sweet sound. And it's so perfect for playing any kind of sort of dance band style music floating on the top. The vibrato you can get from it is just so wonderfully idiomatic of the period. And then there's another horn, which I think might even be from like the 1890s, maybe the 1880s. I can't even, um, I can't even identify it. It's not playable at the moment. I mean, I don't want to make it work because it's in such a beautiful state. The pads are, they're from the beginning of the 20th century easily. They're all chips, they're all broken. In a way, it's like a museum piece. It's got all these extra notes, all these extra buttons that don't exist on modern horns. Wow. So what do you need to do to make it playable? Put modern bits of plastic um, pads on? Yeah, we'd have to. I mean, I, we'd have to, I'd have to find a, one of the best repairers in London. They'd have to custom make a whole load of the parts to fix it because they don't make them like that anymore. All the pads are going to have different diameters, circumferences. There's springs that have not, you know, have not been used since the manufacture of that horn. I mean, it's an incredible piece of kit. It's a huge responsibility to have those, to be at the hold of that history, isn't it? Um, I absolutely agree, yeah. And when, when you're playing those horns specifically, you definitely feel the history that is within them. I'd say especially the baritone, which I haven't found any recorded footage or audio of Ronnie playing it yet, which is a bit... I'd really like to find it because I really want to hear how he sounded on it. But it's completely also bizarrely made, this one. It's got all strange mechanics on it that you don't find on horns that have been made since. Even for the 70s, it was quite a strange piece of kit. But it's got this incredibly huge sound. And when we bought it, it came with all of the mouthpieces that Ronnie used as well. So um, his spit has been infusing. <laughs> uh, nice. Um, no, the, the sound of the horn is just quite something else and you, you can really feel the history when you're playing it and it's just it's amazing to be using it in Soho, in the venues around Spice of Life, at the Pizza Express, at Ronnie's, wherever I get to use it. It, it definitely feels like a lineage that I'm part of. I would encourage you to go to the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com where you'll find links to Tom's social media, his website and many examples of his music. This is being recorded after his two gigs at Ronnie Scott's with Resolution 88, but there will be many, many more. Follow him on Twitter to stay up to date. Thank you to Tom Smith for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to meet you, sir. And yes, I would like a couple of tickets to your next gig. Thank you very much. But it's not goodbye because Tom sticks around to join in the film chat in just a few moments. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. When Ronnie Scott and Pete King opened their first club in 1959, they were often frustrated by musician union rules that were in place at the time, which prohibited US musicians playing over here and vice versa. 
To everyone's great relief, these rules were relaxed in the early 1960s, due in no small part to the efforts of Pete King, which meant that British musicians could perform in the States and Americans were free to perform here. The first of these American visitors to Ronnie's was Zoot Sims, and over the years, the club hosted all the greats, including Ella Fitzgerald, Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, Charlie Mingus, and Dave Brubeck. These are the people that characters in today's film, All Night Long, would call the big boys. All Night Long was made just a few months after the ban on American musicians was lifted and takes place over the course of one night, a night on which the big boys are in town. And because the big boys are in town, the well-heeled jazz enthusiast, the Honourable Rodney Hamilton, played by Richard Attenborough, has laid on a party in a warehouse he keeps especially for that purpose, as explained by Cass, played by Keith Michel. Hey, Cass, is this the place? Yeah, this is the Honourable Rodney Hamilton's pad number four, known as the warehouse. We've aim one. Wow, this is Spook City. I don't like it, it's weird. I thought you said this guy was rich. Rich, he's loaded. A townhouse across the river, a shooting box up north, a villa down south. You name it, he's got it. But why here? What is this? Haven't you heard, honey? Jazz is noisy. You can't have an all-night session in Mayfair. Oh, I get it. Amateur night. Oh, Rod's okay. A real jazz buff. Whenever the big boys are in town, he lays on a party. The party has a dual purpose, though. It's also a surprise bash to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the marriage of the band leader, Aurelius Rex, played by Paul Harris, to his wife, the retired singer Delia Lane, played by Marty Stevens. As the great and the good of the early 1960s jazz world arrive for the festivities, all of whom are playing themselves, including Tubby Hayes, Charlie Mingus, Dave Brubeck and Johnny Dankworth, but without his wife, Cleo Lane, we meet Rex's drummer, Johnny Cousin, played by Patrick McGowan. Despite wearing a pork pie hat, which, as everybody knows, is the king of hats, Johnny comes across as shifty and egotistical. He has a relationship with his wife, Emily, played by Betsy Blair, which borders on the abusive and he is brutally ambitious. We soon learn that since Delia married Rex, she's given up her singing career in order to become a traditional wife. But Johnny has plans to form his own band and to tempt Delia back on stage against Rex's wishes. Look, I'd like Berger to come right out tonight and say, Johnny, Delia, I'm going to book you. I'm going to put you in the Palladium Cup Las Vegas. It's not going to work, Johnny. I know I said I'd think about it, and I have. It won't work. I can't do it. Can't do it? You're crazy. If I did, I, I'd lose Rex. We'd lose each other. Don't talk like that. We've got too much at stake on this, both of us. What do you mean, both of us? I'm not going to do it, Johnny. I'm sorry. Look, Delia, you're not the kind of girl to wait in the wings. You want to work. You want it so much. I know how long and how hard you've planned to have your own band. All you think this means to me is, is having my own band. You just don't know. But Johnny, you don't need me. Yes, I do. It's exactly what I do need, Delia. I need you. Because I want you. Always have. Johnny. Johnny, I like you, but don't talk to me like this again, ever. Now we'll forget it, all right? 
Johnny has made some financial commitments, which means that he will be in deep trouble if he can't convince Delia to join the new band and has already lied to the powerful booking agent Lou Berger, played by Bernard Braden, by telling him that Delia is on board. He now spends the rest of the evening manipulating Rex, Delia and their good friend Cass, attempting to convince the deeply paranoid Rex that Delia and Cass have been having an affair. The logic, I suppose, is that if Rex and Delia separate, she will join his band and to hell with the consequences for anybody else. I should probably mention that Rex is black and Delia is white, and those of a literary bent may have recognised the story by now as being based on that of Shakespeare's Othello. In this version, Othello and Desdemona are Rex and Delia. The conniving Johnny is the modern equivalent of Iago. Cass is Othello's loyal lieutenant, Michael Cassio. And in this jazz version, Rodrigo becomes Rodney Hamilton. Tubby Hayes is Tubby Hayes. And the locations too have been transposed. Although Othello starts in Venice, most of the action then takes place in Cyprus. In All Night Long, the pattern is similar in that although most of the action takes place in a warehouse apartment somewhere on the river, perhaps near Borough Market, the musicians are all arriving after having played a gig in town, I'm guessing at Ronnie Scott's. Venice equals Soho, Bankside equals Cyprus. Do you see? All Night Long was directed by Basil Dearden, who had a track record of making social issue films which dealt with subjects such as racism, homophobia and juvenile delinquency. Odd, then, that the fact of Rex's race is hardly mentioned at all in the film, and what racism is on display comes all from the mouth of one character, you can probably guess who, and is relatively subtle. As you will hear later in the discussion with Gary, the film has its roots in an American screenplay and many of the people involved had fallen foul of Joe McCarthy's Committee on Un-American Activities and this perhaps accounts for an attitude to race which is surprisingly matter-of-fact for a British film of this era. The big selling point of the film back in 1962 though must surely have been the list of major jazz stars who make appearances. Backed up by less famous but equally notable musicians, including Alan Ganley, who was at that time one of Ronnie Scott's in-house drummers. The music runs throughout the film, either as ongoing incidental music or as a series of standalone performances in interludes carved out of the action. Alan Ganley is not the most obscure musician in the film, though, by any means. And when I first considered doing All Night Long some time ago, I heard a rumour, I can't remember where I heard this or who told me, that Chaz and Dave are in All Night Long as very young session musicians. I've been through it with a fine-tooth comb with my finger hovering over the pause button, but I've not been able to spot them yet. If you're the person who told me that, or if you think you can identify them, get in touch. I would love it to be true, but I fear it's not. Okay, it's now time for me to tell my Othello joke. Clutch your sides in anticipation. What do Othello and popcorn have in common. They're both very Moorish. <laughs> Sorry, I'll cut that out later. My second guest, Gary Yershon, has been on Soho Bites before and on Mural Morsels and has wowed audiences at the Kino in Bermondsey, leading two sing-alongs at recordings of the Kino Quickies podcast. He is a composer for theatre and film and is probably best known for his collaborations with Mike Lee on films such as Mr Turner and Happy Go Lucky. Excited as he was by all night long and by us all being in Ronnie Scott, he remained seated quietly and calmly at the table 
while I spoke to Tom Smith, but I could tell he was itching to get involved. When it was finally Gary's turn, I began by putting it to him that as a man of the theatre, a man of music and a man of film, all night long must be right up his street. Well, it's certainly very interesting looking at all those actors and listening to all that music. All of that's very gratifying. And I'd seen it years ago, but I'm so glad you asked me to revisit it. It's full of interesting things. I mean, Patrick McGowan, for example, who, since the film was made, became a legend because of The Prisoner. And as a difficult person as well, he's quite renowned for being quite difficult, isn't he? I don't know. I mean, you, you read these kind of things. He certainly wasn't difficult in the kind of Richard Harris way where... He wasn't like that at all. He was married to his wife throughout, children. You know, he seems to have been a very ordinary guy on one level. But I think he was he was quite into controlling the stuff that he was doing. He wasn't just a turn-up and perform it actor. He wanted to have much more input than actors of his period were wont to get. Patrick McGowan is, is kind of the lead, isn't he? If there is a lead, it's not really Richard, it's not, not Dickie, is it? It's not. It's an odd situation. It's based on Othello, and Othello, as you might think, is about Othello. So the guy who's playing the Othello figure, who's an actor called Paul Harris, you would have thought was the centre of the film. And in a way, his decisions and his the, the the moves he makes are the important moves. As in the play, it's really Iago you watch, and that's what McGowan is playing. He's playing the the baddie. <laughs> it's a very twitchy, weaselly performance. I think he's great in it. I love big performances in films, and he's big. Actually, everybody's is. I think only Richard Attenborough, whose who's part is weird. Uh, he's a kind of host of the evening. In the, in the play, his equivalent character, Rodrigo, is actually in love with Desdemona mm. Delia. But that's completely rooted out, and he's really just a function of... Uh, Brings it all together. Yeah, it's quite it's quite a non-part, really. And it's a bit odd he accepted it, because he was already quite a name. I reckon it was, this must have been bubbling under. People in the film world would have... Oh, have you heard Basil's doing a jazz film? And to have all those people, Dave Brubeck and... Oh, yes. To have the Americans in Muslim, Charlie Mingus, that must have been quite a big... Must have caused a bit of a stir, I would have thought. It must have been pretty astonishing, I think. What's the bit curious is that that being the case your Othello character Rex or Elias Rex he's, he's a wonderful actor Paul Harris he really is got presence and command he can really handle it and he's very dynamic and a feeling of contained rage that just bursts out at the end and all that kind of stuff but he's not a star Marty Stevens who plays the Desdemona part Delia she also I mean, she was a singer, a well-known singer, but she's, they're not at the level, those people, of the jazz players, Mingus and Tubby Hayes and Dankworth. I mean, really well-known. So it's it's kind of odd that the parts were not, that Sidney Poitier's not in it, because the previous year he'd been playing a jazz guy in Paris Blues, the Master yeah, Maybe it's too close. Maybe, maybe. Mm. Marty Stevens. Marty Stevens. I wasn't aware of her, but you've seen her before. Yeah. Uh, 1971 was the London production of Company, the Stephen Sondheim musical. I went to see it at Her Majesty's Theatre 
Elaine Stritch in the cast, Larry Kurt, and uh, there was Marty Stevens taking over the role from an American actress called Barbara Barry, who did it on Broadway. And she, she had a little box, you know, like you get on the posters when somebody's meant to be important. And Marty Stevens. Yeah, also. Yeah, and Marty Stevens. So she was obviously somebody. And I mean, I was 17, so what did I know? Yeah, I think she's really good, actually. I was, I, was, I was really impressed by her. I was surprised I didn't know more about her, but it sounds like she's much, very much a sort of a Broadway stage person. She's she did do many films, is she? She's still alive. Yeah. It's astonishing. She's, um, I would say she's primarily, primarily known as a singer, which makes sense. Of the, her three songs, she sings two of them, with Cleo representing her change of style. So that must have been infuriating for Marty Stevens, who probably thought she might be able to do it. And she's called Delia Lane yeah. as well. I wonder if that's a nod to Cleo, because yeah. Mr. Mr. Lane's in this film as well. And well, when... Johnny Dankworth enters, mm. Attenborough's character says, I'm so sorry, Cleo couldn't come. Yeah. Bong. Another quite key performance, somebody else who I, I was only vaguely aware of, it, Betsy Blair. Betsy Blair. And actually, this feeds into a whole element of the, the film, Basil did and being a social issue kind of director, because Betsy, she was blacklisted along with Paul Jarrico. Tell me about her, because she I thought she was really good, and I, I'm surprised I don't know more about her. Well, I, I am quite surprised you don't know about her. No, I, I recognise her, but I can't really play so you know. As an actress, she's best known for having been Oscar-nominated for her role opposite Ernest Borgnine in Marty. She's wonderful. She has she brings that quality to what she does. She was married to Gene Kelly for a pretty long time. And then while she was doing this film, maybe, around this time, she married Carl Rice, the director of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, very well-known film director. But yeah, she was here really, like many others, Joe Losey, for example, Joseph Losey, because she was blacklisted. And Paul Jarrico, who wrote the uh, screenplay with Nell King, who wrote a biography of Charlie Mingus. Apart from that, Nell King's only screen credit is this. But uh, Jarrico had done shed loads of screenplays in the Hollywood industry in the 40s and 50s, including uh, Tom, Dick and Harry, which was it's quite a jolly film, Ginger Rogers' vehicle. Jarrico is particularly interesting because in 1954, he made a film called Sort of the Earth as a producer, a writer, and it was two fingers up at the McCarthy, Joe McCarthy's House on American Activities committee saying okay if we're supposed to be communists we're going to make a left-wing film and he made this film about miners striking in mexico and um it's now a classic but it was banned and it's a very rare american film in that sense it was banned in the 50s because of its left-wingerism that betsy blair also was blacklisted and she here she is in this you could interpret the way that johnny works on Rex as putting suspicions in people's minds and having a kind of uh, rumour mill that works with that kind of you know, communist stuff. Another person in the film who, again, I wasn't really aware of, I think it's possibly an age thing, is Bernard Braden, yeah. who did these sort of time capsule interviews in the 60s of movers and shakers like Scylla Black and Lulu and Tom Jones, and the idea was to, to go back to them every three or four years, a bit like that series 7-Up, 
and see how they're doing. It never, it never, it didn't happen. But what do you know about him? Do you, do you remember him as a very, very well? Him, he and his wife Barbara Kelly were kind of ubiquitous on telly. Barbara Kelly was a great kind of favourite on things like What's My Line, quiz shows, that kind of thing. They were Canadian, I think. Well, certainly he was. Mm. And I think they had had a radio series and they moved into TV. His show, Braden Beat, ended up having a segment, it ran in various forms, a consumer issues segment. He invented Esther Rance. <laughs> <laughs> that's where she started off so it's his fault it's all his fault but I think he is good in it mm. and uh, I never really knew he could out he handles that high status stuff very very well one of the main themes of Othello is obviously race doesn't really make much of an appearance as an issue in this film and he just happens to be black yeah it's very interesting somebody worth talking about in the context of the blacklist is Bob Roberts, who's credited as the executive producer. He's another blacklisted figure. He came to London with this screenplay. Really, it's probably meant to have an American milieu. You know, if you can imagine it being set in Harlem, it may well have been much more matter-of-fact in the way that the jazz thing is operating. But here, in that period, the black musicians are representative of something in the film that are different to the American I mean, if you imagine it being set in New York it would have a completely different flavour I think yeah. whereas here especially in the context of Basil Deaton's other work Sapphire which is a murder mystery set up against a black background Pool of London Pool of London with again a black and white couple that was very very daring at the time and the relationship doesn't go anywhere let alone get they don't get married as these two do in uh, this film. This has moved on, I think. If there is a matter of factness about it, you do feel, with a couple of remarks that Johnny makes, Patrick McGowan's character, that he's a racist. You just get that a little bit. He makes a remark about uh, he would do anything, even go to South Africa and... Yes, that's the only thing I've noticed, actually. He said he'd, he'd do anything for even go to Johannesburg or something. And white jazz musicians, you know, you can squeeze us into a, the number of us into a telephone. Yeah. So he makes specifically racist remarks. But the most telling remark, I think, in terms of the race issue in the film, which is, is not played up in the way that it is in the other social issue films by Basil did, including, of course, Victim, which is, instead of addressing the issue of race, he's addressing the oppression of gay people. Towards the end, after all the drama, Rex says to Delia, he is worried about her feeling that she would be coming into an alien world. And I think it's difficult to know what he means. She's already in the jazz world. He must mean a multiracial marriage. That, right towards the end of the film, is the kind of social concern moment. And it comes, it's expressed in a very emotional, but also quite covert way. And it contrasts heavily with, say, Pool of London or with Sapphire, where it's absolutely in your face. Or um, Paris Blues, American film set in Paris the previous year. Absolutely, those issues are out there. Mm. You think that's what makes Rex so paranoid and... But is, is so, like, making her give up her career. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a gloss that we've put on it now with a feminist perspective, that 
it just wouldn't have existed at that stage. She's she's doing what women did. She's doing what women did, and from our perspective, it's a bit weak. I just wanted I, I wanted to mention Maria Velasco, who plays Benny, who's the character. The other black woman who's in a relationship with a white man. She's just, absolutely terrific, yeah. and I can't find anything about her. She's got a credit for being a pianist in some other film. Can't remember the name of it, but she's I guess she's part of the musical world of London and she's disappeared I don't know anything about her at all so if anybody does know I'd be very interested to oh hold on a second I'm going to put this switch his microphone on Tom is still here and he thinks he might know something about well, well not particularly about her but I just thought I, while we were talking about the race relations in the film something that struck me was about all, most of the musicians that we see in the film of our American the American heroes and the English heroes most of them are white and we, we listen to a lot of music that has been written by the white members of the band. And one of the moments when we see Rex trying to figure out what's going on, he sits down at the piano and he plays uh, Mood Indigo, which is uh, a uh, Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn composition. And it's one of the only times we hear um, uh, a black piece of music. And something the, one of the other moments at the very beginning is that we see Charlie Mingus is like the first musician. He's already sat in place... Uh, on the bandstand he doesn't really get as much of an introduction as all of the other musicians when they come in so there's possibly like a a very passive bit of background racism going on with not the sort of unacknowledgement of black africanness in the music very interesting could kind of be a big part of that as well because all of the other musicians as we've already said when tankworth comes in a big deal is made out of him and cleo lane and when brubeck comes that's a that's a real moment when all the guests sort of notice him arriving and maybe this kind of plays into the fact that there's not a lot of overt racism in, in the film, or specifically line-wise, but it's it's sort of there, hidden in the background. Yeah, it's that's very interesting because Dearden's work as uh, in the area of you know social issues. There's another film called A Life for Ruth where it's religion. Yeah, and there's also the one about is it called Violent Playground? Oh yes, kind of like youth. I mean, that, these very interesting. Uh, it's a double-edged. Sword, because is he showing in that in what you've just described? Is he showing how it was, or is it just an unselfconscious racism on behalf of the filmmakers? It's difficult to know. Johnny is definitely like a he. He comes across as a show drummer, and you maybe there's a sense of the kind of, kind of uh, music as a business kind of coming in that he wants to be an entertainer, and that Johnny doesn't care anything about the music and the history because he sits down and he's got his own drum skin and he he's playing acrobatics all over the instruments. And that again, that could just be like a passive racist attitude to the music that he's not taking it in so much as a character. He's just concerned with himself and he doesn't care about the music. I mean, that, that's is a standard trope in, in films about art in general and about music also, that you know, just represented by the Braden character, really. Do you sell your soul to go down the commercial route or do you stay a pure artist? And um, I mean, it's ubiquitous in almost every you know, film about um, Van Gogh or, you know, mm. anybody. It's about that dilemma for the artist. But on Patrick McGoon's character... He apparently learned the drums for this film. And he seems quite good to me. I don't know. I, th I think he was being... I think he got overdubbed by Alan. I think he got overdubbed by Alan Ganley um, for some of the harder bits. But you can tell that he's definitely... He's learned enough that it looks right on film. Yeah. It's interesting to contrast it with Keith Michelle playing the sax. Because he, that doesn't look real at all. Mm. He, yeah, no, no, he doesn't do. Keith Michelle 
had a really good career as a stage musical singer, but he had no idea how to play stars, and you can see that really clearly. At least I would imagine. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, he he did a he did an okay job. That's what that's as fair as we can say as a saxophone player. That's very decent if you'd say I would have been much ruder. About and, it. and conversely, some of the musicians trying to be actors. It's quite bad. Dave Brubeck is like, hello, how are you doing? You know, it's like, Yeah, but also, in fairness, their lives are appalling. Yeah. So, you know. How do we categorise it? You categorically said it's not a musical. No. People talk about it as a, as a noir... Do they? Thriller, yeah. Which I don't, I'm not quite sure. Music is integral to the film throughout, and there's a great bit where, towards the end, where Rex is getting completely paranoid, is about to go and assault Delia... And the band happens to be playing this music that really suits that situation. And that happens all the way through. There's always, you know, they're always playing the right music for the tone of the film. But there are bits where it's just a break for a musical number. Dave Brubeck has a whole, like, five-minute number, and there's two songs by Delia. But it's not a musical. No, I think most of the interludes in the way that you describe them there, they take place in the first third or so of the film before the plot starts to grit. And after that, the music tends to be used as much more of a commentary on the situation. So, um, yeah, much more like a traditional soundtrack. And Philip Green is credited as, just as music. Yeah. Yeah, he's an interesting figure, Philip Green. He was kind of around in the way that people were. He was the head of um, music for the rank organisation. So, of course, he would turn up filling in for all kinds of films, especially the ones I remember and for the Norman Wisdom films. Oh, I used to see his name, yeah, coming up for those. But I, I read that he'd had a very interesting late part to his life after he'd left environs such as Soho and the film industry. He he went to live in Wales, or was it Ireland? But he, he became, he started doing church music and he was a good Jewish boy, so that's a very strange <laughs> move. Born in Whitechapel kind of thing that kind of thing. But he started to, he wrote a, a mass or two and he really took to it. Well, the, all I knew him from really was um, he did the music for The Shakedown. Yeah, he could turn his hand to anything like you could. There's a film, um, I can't remember the name of it, it stars Sean Connery, it'll come to me, it's Frightened City. Oh yeah. Now the music for The Frightened City is played by The Shadows. It's about this time, mm. you know, and the musical director of the film was Norrie Paramore, who was an agent and manager. Big name around this time. And that's what they would all do. It, it's, it was much less... They would flit over all these different areas of work, whether it be film or show or whatever. And Philip Green was just one of these people who could turn his hand to anything. And in fact, Joel Cameron, who we talked about with regard to A Touch of Class, is another wide-ranging musician who can work in pretty much any genre, really. I suppose if you've got the situation where you said he was head of music at rank, I mean, to have a sort of departmental structure like that, it's a bit like Ronnie Hazelhurst doing every BBC theme during the 70s. You do end up with a kind of, not a house style, but a kind of a sense of continuity musically. And you you also become responsible for things. I mean, Louis Levy at Gainsborough or something like that, you become responsible for all kinds of projects that you maybe at the last minute can't get somebody to to do so you end up having a range whether you like it or not 
Thank you to Gary Yershon for coming on the show. Again, brilliant and insightful as ever. I put links in the show notes to all of Gary's previous appearances on all of my podcasts and also to a Q&A he did recently at the gorgeous Garden Cinema with his old mucker Mike Lee. You'll also find many, many links on the show notes for this episode to information about my other guest, Tom Smith, including listings for the tracks of his that I played earlier. And I also want to thank Paul Pace from Ronnie Scott's for granting us access to the club. You'll find all the links you need about the film, the guest, their work and the club and lots of other stuff at the usual place, SohoBytesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show for any reason at all, you can do that on Twitter. The handle is at BytesSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And if you feel like supporting us either morally or financially, the links to do that are SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dum Delaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. Until next time, take good care and bye for now. Bye.